clearing my throat. Oh my goodness. I'll be clearing my throat a little bit as I get started. Um, we've only been back together for a month at my home church and being with other people makes me sing really loud and my voice is not used to it. So I sound very raspy, um, but I know that the Lord still receives it. He takes whatever we offer. So it is good to be here today. Um, like Glenn mentioned, my name is Freddie. I work at Northview Community Church in Abbotsford. Um, and I, I think I've been here here twice via video. So I, it might be a familiar face, but I'll just tell you a little bit about myself uh, before we get started. I'm married to Rebecca. Tomorrow we celebrate seven years together. So yeah, I know. Come on. I, it's, we're really excited. Um, and we have one baby. We have one little boy, four months old. Uh, he was born this last March. So they did not join me. They did not really want to be part of the commute. And that's fair. That's fair. I understand that. Uh, I was a little disappointed. My son doesn't want to listen to my preaching, um, but he's little. He has a whole life ahead of him. My wife, Rebecca, is from the prairies. Right? She's from the Lethbridge area. If, if you're familiar with Canadian geography, as soon as you cross the mountains, you have just miles of flat, right? And it's, it's the breadbasket of Canada, right? They produce a bunch of stuff. Um, and we visit every single summer. Like we, we love our family. Family is a huge value, uh, both for my wife and for myself. So that's one of the things that brought us together. We always go every summer, visit our family. If you've ever been to Alberta in like April, it's beautiful. Like everything is blooming and you're like, I could live here. And then you go two months later and you're like, everything is dead. It is perpetually brown. Like, and I'm, I'm a brown dude, so I don't mind the color brown, but like the entire, like everywhere you look is dead grass, like everywhere. And then the weed is starting to go, the barley's starting to, like, to bloom, I guess. Um, so everything is just brown. And after being there for a week and, and coming home, like the experience of, you know, g- getting close to hope when we're driving or when we fly and we kind of descend into the valley and you look out the window and green, like everywhere you look, it's just, and it's not just like one green, it's not monochromatic, like there's shades of green, like all kinds of green and mountains and water everywhere. And you look at it and you were like, God made this, like, wow. Like, and then you like, you look out again, you're like, wow, like God made this. And, and this is the world affected by sin. Like it'll still be better than this. And you look at it and you, you're amazed. And you know, you turn to the people next to you and they're like, wow, it is beautiful here. And then you get home and you forget like that. Right. Or you tell, you know, people who have been here the whole time and they're like, nope, it's good to have you back. Yes. We still have mountains. Yes. We still have trees. Right. Familiarity breeds contempt. And if not contempt, then indifference. That happens to us as we live in the most in beautiful BC, right? One of the most beautiful places in Canada, maybe on earth. I'm not even from here originally, so I'm unwilling to give you that accolade, but it's growing on me. My point is you look at this beautiful province and you're taken aback after you've been away for a while. I think the scriptures are no different. I think there are things that Christian people hear or Christian people read and they interact with them and they think, yes. Amen. True. Good. And then we forget. And some of those things are worth repeating. Today, I want to talk about one very simple idea, that the songs we sung this morning, that the scriptures themselves scream out at us, all people owe God. All people owe God. The text for today is out of Mark 12. It's a very small story. It's five verses. 
These five verses bring up this point in a way that is, is so clear that I wanted to share it with you this morning. So Mark 12, starting in verse 13. And they, so the religious leaders in the time of Jesus, sent to him, sent to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said these famous words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They marveled at him. Right, so we're jumping into Mark 12. I want to give you kind of the the literary context. Mark is 16 chapters. We're jumping in at verse 12. Jesus has finally gotten to Jerusalem. He's been ministering for three years. So this guy's been running around for three years doing incredible things, right? Preaching to people, casting out demons, healing people. And the consistent thing over and over again is that he keeps making comments. He keeps doing things that only God can do. And there's an inevitable showdown between Jewish religious authorities and Jesus as they keep kind of running into each other. And at first, it's kind of snide remarks or whispers to each other. But as the book progresses, as Mark's story unfolds, more and more we see this conflict showing up. And he finally, in in Mark 11, he finally gets to Jerusalem. And the last few chapters are him going at it with these religious leaders. He's in the city. He's amongst the crowds. People have gathered to him. And it's it's a showdown. It's it's throwdown time. It, it didn't instantly go there. Jesus wasn't the kind of guy to go zero to 100, right? So as they're together, he starts being confronted far more openly than before. There's a great story here kind of in, in Mark 11, which I want to read for you. In Mark 11, uh, they came to Jerusalem again. So Jesus would habitually go there and then go back out to the wilderness. As Jesus and his disciples came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from man, or if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. They answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority. The reason I share you this story is because that that was kind of the fundamental conflict. Like Jesus had said some things and done some things that implied or directly stated that he had the authority of God, that he was speaking for God. And the religious authorities rejected that. So one of them is wrong. They're mutually exclusive. And inevitably, because they hold contrasting opinions, they're going to keep butting heads and in our passage, we get to one of, one of the best interactions because Jesus clearly teaches what he came to show all people. So as these people kind of keep interacting with him, keep butting heads, the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups of people gather together and they hatch a scheme. And this group of people, it's an unlikely partnership. It would be like cats and dogs 
gathering together because they hate raccoons, right? Like it, it is, you would never think they're pals, but they're pals because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They get together and they hatch actually a very, very clever scheme. They ask, they, you know, they go and they flatter first, right? They say, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions for you are swayed by appearance or you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God, right? They are buttering him up. Right? We do this too, right? This comes natural to us when we want, want to get something from someone or, you know, when I was in grade school, we would often do this when we knew the teacher was probably going to assign homework and you kind of started saying some kind of things like, you're my favorite science teacher that I, I've ever had. Like, honestly, I read my textbook for fun because of this class and, you know, you don't, you don't even need to make us read it because I do it on my own and we just love you and then the bell rings and, and you're free, right? We do this. We butter people up to manipulate them. And these teachers, they show up, and they, that's their plan. They butter Jesus up to trick him. They want him to lower his guard. They want to get him to say something or do something that's going to get him in hot water. The irony, of course, is that everything they said was disingenuous. They did not mean what they said, but every single thing they said was true. Like, Jesus is true. Like, that was the first thing they said. We know that you are true. And Jesus says this about himself. I am the way, the truth and the life. They tell Jesus, you're not swayed by appearance. And that is true. Jesus sees through people's motives. He knows their thoughts and continues to preach and teach, even though he knows he will be opposed. Ultimately, they say, we know that you truly teach God's law. They're, they're telling him, we know that you actually represent God, that you are a prophet speaking for God to the people. They obviously did not believe that, but that is true of who Jesus is. He's a prophet like Moses, he came to teach the law, not to abolish it. They say all these things to him, trying to get him to lower his guard, trying to get him, trying to, get him to think that, you know, he is in safe company. And then they spring their trap. And it seems like an innocent question, right? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? It's very straightforward. But this tax, like, what, what is the tax they're talking about? Well, starting in AD 6, so this was probably 30 years or so before the moment where this conversation took place, the Roman government started a census tax. So any person within the Roman Empire who was not a Roman citizen paid one denarius every single year for living in the prosperity that Rome gave with cities and roads and the military protecting everybody and a universal system of currency. So this was, this was the price, if you will, of freedom. The tax was quite small. One denarius is one day's wages, right? And in those times, people didn't have mandatory, you know, two-week vacations through their jobs or weekends off, right? Everyone worked probably seven days. Maybe you didn't work if you were sick, but people are working 360-plus days a year, right? So one of those days, that amount of money that you made, you had to give to the Roman government. So the religious authorities come to Jesus, and they ask a question about an insignificant tax in an insignificant place, Right? Jerusalem was on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. It seems like a simple conversation. It's the kind of thing we would do around a dinner table, right? Or sitting down with a friend for coffee. Like, do you think we should pay that? Do you think, is this the kind of thing that these people should do? But the amount wasn't the issue. The presence of the tax was the issue. It, it, went, it went so much deeper for the Jewish people. First of all, this tax was a reminder that Rome was king, not God that they had to pay money in Roman currency to a Roman government 
thousands of miles away, was a reminder that God was not with his people, that, that they were still ruled by foreigners, that, that they were still waiting for a day when God was going to show up and rescue them. So it reminded them that, you know what? We're, we're abandoned. We're, we're still waiting for God to act in our world. And the, the real kicker, like the thing that made it sting the most was that the Daenerys, the tiny little coin, it, Roman coin, and it had to be, it was a Roman tax that had to be pay with, paid with the Roman coin. But that tax, like, like any currency, right, it had imprints on it. And it had a phrase that to us might seem insignificant, but to them made their skin itch. Tiberius Augustus Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The Roman emperor at the time, Tiberius, minted these coins, right? And this is what governments do, right? The faces of people who ruled are on our money, right? It's a very normal thing. But for Jewish people, this was, like, this was the highest like, idolatry that, that could exist. There's a coin with the face of a human person saying, they are the son of God. And the Jewish people had to take this coin and carry it on them, an act of idolatry, and carry it to a Roman and give them that money. They're mad they have to pay. They're mad they have to use Roman money. And the message on that coin is this Caesar is king. This Caesar is God. And it made them angry. And how should a faithful Jew react to this, right? Now we see kind of why they even asked this question. Every Jewish person was wondering, like, do we even need to pay this? Is it time to rise up and fight the Romans? We shouldn't have to do this, right? They wanted to burn Roman flags, right? They, like, it's, t- it's time to rebel, Jesus. And now we see the trap. They're asking a simple question with massive political and religious implications. And Jesus sees their trap. Jesus sees what they are up to. He's in the middle of a land uh, of a landmine field, and they just need him to step. Doesn't matter which way he goes, there's going to be problems. So Jesus is stuck, right? If he answers on one hand, pay the tax. Like, you know what? It's the law. We submit to the government. Pay the tax. The people will hate him. Jewish people will be like, but, but we thought you were like a prophet from God. We thought that actually you could be like the next king. And we've been following you for three years because we think you're the guy. And when you have an opportunity to step up and say, let's get the Romans out of here. God has returned. I'm his spokesperson. Let's rise up. You turn it down. You say, pay the tax like it's not a big deal. Encouraging idolatry. There's no way that Jesus could be the Messiah. There's no way that the people will continue to follow him. So Jesus can't say, pay the tax. If Jesus says, don't pay the tax, he is openly defined, defied the Roman government. Every single person who hears him is going to think he is advocating for rebellion. And the Romans will hear of it, and they will arrest him and crucify him. So he will be killed on one hand, discredited on the other hand. No matter which way Jesus goes, he's in a gotcha moment. He's hooped. Take one step, boom. Take one step, boom. So how does Jesus get out of this dilemma? Right? Because it is, truly is a dilemma. There is no dodging this one. They've asked the question. If he avoids it, he's a coward. If he answers, no matter which way he goes, there will be problems. But Jesus is God. Jesus is the wisdom of God in person. And he is not trapped. He asked them for Daenerys, right? A very simple question. 
will you give me that coin? And they have one, which is a terribly ironic in the scheme of the story, right? The reason they ask the question is because paying the tax is complicit with idolatry. And Jesus asked them, not on a tax day, just on a random day, and they happened to be carrying one in their pocket. Jewish religious leaders, like the people who taught the Bible to everyone else, were carrying a coin in their pocket that said, Caesar is God. Like it, is, it made them look like hypocrites. But Jesus isn't just trying to make them look bad. He's actually trying to answer the question. So he re- replies with this, verse 16, whose likeness and inscription is this? A very simple question. Caesar's, they replied. Right, so the, the question, obviously, is if it's a Roman coin with a Roman face on it, that money should go to a Roman, which leads to, to the response. Right? This, and this is the most well-known phrase in this little story. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus is asked a political, religious question. And he answers even deeper. He goes to a moral answer, to like a, what is the purpose of human life? Because he says, well, you know, the coin is Caesar's. Like Caesar minted it. it. We live in this government. We live in this society. So pay the tax. His, his inscription is on it. His image is on that coin. Pay the coin. And the things that are God's belong to God, right? So if Caesar's imprinted his image on a coin... The implication is God has imprinted his image on something else. If you know the scriptures, Genesis 1.27 gives us this doctrine that God created humanity, male and female, in his image. In the same way that Caesar stamped a coin with his face, God has stamped all of humanity with his face. And now Jesus goes to the heart of the issue. If Roman coins with Roman faces go to Roman governments... What happens to people with God's imprint on them? What do they owe God? Right? And this is really the question that we all have to answer. What do people owe God? And I think the scriptures are not silent. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it, therein. God made everything. God printed people with his, his image And everything that exists, everything around us belongs to him. Psalm 110 makes it even more explicit. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God is not willing to sit on the sideline and let someone else be king. He says to his Lord, I'm going to make you king. I'm going to make you in charge. I'm going to put you over everything. It's not enough that I created it. I actually want to be in charge of it because I made it. According to these Psalms, According to the word of God, God is not willing to let society go in the direction that it is going. God is not willing to let Caesar be Caesar and be silent on the matter. Caesar is still Caesar, but God is God. The question of government is superseded by the question of where people's ultimate allegiance is. And at the ultimate allegiance, everyone owes God. And I want to be more specific Everyone owes God loyalty and praise. Loyalty and praise. I think this is not a hard concept to grasp. Like we, we naturally do this when we are around someone who creates something beautiful. Right? So if, if you were around Bill Gates, right, the guy who founded Microsoft, 
who put personal computers in people's homes for the first time in human history, or Steve Jobs when he was around, when people are around him, like the guy who made the phones that everyone has in their pockets, or laptops that you can find at every college dorm campus across the world, or Elon Musk, the guy who founded Tesla, where you see those shiny cars driving everywhere in the HOV slash electric lane. When you're around those people, what tends to be the reaction of normal people like us, when we're around them, these creators, what do we do? Ah, you made an amazing product. I, I, can I get a picture with you? I just, I love what you do. We praise them. It flows naturally from us. What the scriptures teach is that God made everything. God made us. And as we live in beautiful BC and we look around the, be- the beauty of the world is much greater than a shiny car or a glass phone. And what is that God owed? What does that creator deserve for making everything? Praise. All people should give God praise. What, what the Bible calls worship right, is a Christian term, right? But it's trying to communicate this idea that we thank God for making everything. He made it beautiful. It did not have to be that way. God made people like you and me, all kinds of people, all shapes and sizes, all colors, both sexes. God made all of that. What does that God deserve? Praise. What the Bible calls worship. And the failure to do so, the failure to say, thank you, God, for this world. Thank you, God, for making everything. The failure to praise God, we can call sin. It is, it's rebellion. God made it. God made you, put his image on you, deserves your praise for making you, for making the world around you. And if you choose not to, the scriptures call that sin. The reality of our world is there are people around us who are not yet Christians. And often we go to them and we say, you know, you should come be a Christian. Like, come follow Jesus. Right? And oftentimes the conversation ends up very quickly at like the way that you live, which is an appropriate conversation to have. Christianity has implications on how you live. But, but like the very first thing is, who does that person worship? Like who do they praise? Who do they thank for every single thing that they have? That's the first conversation. And according to this passage, according to the whole witness of scriptures, the answer should be God. God is the person that they should be thanking and they should be praising. And before they can even move to obedience of him, they have to start there. Thank you, God, for giving me life today. Thank you, God, for this family I have around me, for the country that I live in. Before that person could ever even start to think about obeying God in everything else he commands, They have to obey God in the very first thing that he commands. They have to pay the very first debt they owe. They need to start thanking, praising, worshiping this God. The reality of Christian churches, however, is not, there's not just people that do not yet believe in Jesus. There's also people who gather with us, either in person or virtually, who believe they are Christians. They have good intentions, and they do the Christian thing, right? They have a Bible. They read it sometimes. They do the church thing. They listen to the right podcasts, maybe Christian radio. But when you ask them, when you're having a conversation with them, and you're sitting there face-to-face, and you're like, like how's it going? The entire conversation is about them. I did this. I had a great work week, and you know I'm killing it over here. And I can't wait for my vacation where I'm going to go relax 
because life is fun and I, wanna, I just want to enjoy myself. And never once in that conversation, a person who claims, I follow God, never once did they acknowledge, thank, praise, say a kind thing about the God who made them, about the God who in that very moment is keeping them alive. What the scriptures teach is all of creation exists because God made it, but is sustained because God keeps it that way. Like the very breath in my lungs right now that allows me to say these things, God is empowering me to do. And Christian people, very quickly, they forget. And they sit in rooms like this, and they think, great message. And they leave and only talk about them. Non-Christians need to start worshiping God. People who believe they're Christians need to continue worshiping God. And ultimately, if you're here and you're like, Freddie, I do that. Like, I try my very best. Like, the very first thing I do every morning, thank you, God, for giving me life. Like, I'm, I'm trying, man. Like, it's a little bit more complicated than that when I talk to a real person who is this far apart on worldviews. And I, like, try to get the conversation there, and it's super, super hard. I know it is. I'm in the same place. I talk to non-Christian people, and to even get them to the place where I could, you could share the gospel, so, so difficult. But, like, the very first thing that I could do in any conversation is at least introduce the idea of God. Thank God that I got to see you today. Thank God that my baby is healthy and I'm celebrating seven years of marriage with my wife. God has blessed us so richly. They're like, whoa, 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 like, Freddie, like, you asked her out, right? I'm like, no, yeah, I totally did. But I didn't have to meet her. If my life goes a little different, I never leave the U.S. If my life goes a little different, I come to Canada and, you know, on the mission trip I met her on, we never really connect. And I find someone else at Bible college. Or fine, we, we get together, but because we're different people and we're both self-centered, just things don't go great. And we separate. This thing that I worked for, I can focus on me, or I can still introduce the idea that God gave it to me. We can do this in every single conversation, at every single opportunity. We can thank God for everything we have. And this is, like, this is the point of this passage. There... It goes deeper than that, and there, there's so much more that we could talk about. In if, if government is here and God is here, there's so much more we could talk about. But like the very first thing, the very first thing, the primacy is that God is owed our worship. The songs we sang, sang this morning, we should be singing all the time. As we talk about our lives, we should constantly be ascribing praise to the God who gave you everything you have, to the God who made you, the God who made everything around you that you enjoy. All of life, Romans 12.1 says, all of life is worship. Every single conversation is an opportunity to ascribe praise and honor to this God who gave you everything. And really, like that is the point of human history. Like every single person owes God praise and every single person will pay. Like one day, Habakkuk 2.14 is a great passage that makes this very clear. A prophet speaking to people like us, says this, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. In Philippians 2, Paul says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of human history is moving to a point where people will be thanking and praising God. As Christians today, we have the opportunity to help them along the way. Every person owes God praise 
Will you pay what you owe? Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for life. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here and get here safely. Lord, thank you that every person that is here today is here today. I pray that wherever they're going as, as they leave this room, Lord, would you give them opportunity both to praise God and to help others. Every single person as we walk around Squamish, as we drive back to Abbotsford and walk around Abbotsford, every single person that we interact with owes you praise. God, would you use us to help them get there? We await the day when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until then, help us hang on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think Rudy will lead us in a song.